and welcome to this first of three shows coming from this year's Guru Live. I'm Rihanna Dillon and today we'll be hearing expert advice and support from the world of film. So get ready for insights from screenwriters Alice Lowe and Alice Birch, plus the producers of movies including 71, 45 Years and The Girl With All The Gifts. If you want to get ahead in filmmaking, this is the place to be, so stay with us. with a panel of esteemed screenwriters giving you the lowdown on getting from page one to the big screen. We'll hear from Alice Lowe, the writer, director and lead actor in Provenge, Alice Birch, who wrote Lady Macbeth, and Will Sharp, who's a writer and director. You might know him from Flowers and Black Pond. The chair is Danny Lee, and in this clip, you'll hear the screenwriters discuss the difficulties on taking notes. I mean, I think there's lots of different tactics, but the, the thing that I do with every single, every single script, every single thing I ever write, is I always, any, any redraft, even if I've only got a note on one word, on one scene, I write the whole thing out again. Because I think that really helps with those notes. It also stops anything feeling like an in, quite a big insertion or a removal, or because rhythm is so important. You can keep an eye on all your characters. And I think, it, I think you just, I don't know, it makes me feel like I can take the notes better. So you're not, yeah, you're not kind of tempering with what's already there. No, I'm not kind of going thing. in to fix that note for that exec and that note for that person and, oh, the editor didn't like that and the lead actress is feeling funny about that scene. Like, you're sort of, then you're going to end up with something that just feels tonally completely wrong and you're going to be really far away from the thing that you started to write. I think you have to feel in control of every word, breath, moment, whatever, on the page. So I always write everything out again, yeah. Okay. I mean, Alice, I mean, it sounded like you were kind of, the response was to basically just focus in all the more kind of fervently on what that original tone or what that original idea had been. Yeah, I mean, um, I felt sort of a kind of responsibility to, to maintain the tone. I think it is like this likability thing mm. as well. Like, as a, as a female director and writer, I was like, you are not going to tamper with my fucking character mm. and I'm not going to change it. it. I had this slightly with Sightseers as well that, um, I mean, even Ben sort of said to me, oh, I'm a bit worried, is the character going to be likeable? And I was like... Red rag to a ball, but I was a bit like, "Don't worry about that," because I'm I'm playing the character. <laughs> so don't worry about that bit. Because you know, it's it's like empathy. It's a it's a very difficult term. It's sort of like I kind of think, um, I think you know, film is a tool whereby you're forced into someone else's shoes. So if you're looking at someone's face for long enough and you see into their eyes, you're going to go on that journey with them, and it doesn't. That's, that's the whole point, is like you get to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. It's like virtual reality, you know. You don't have to make the same decisions as the character. You can just enjoy them making the decisions you wouldn't make. Mm -hmm. I think for me as well, like with Prevenge, I was like, I want this to have a drama element because I haven't written drama before. I want to challenge myself and I want to challenge the audience to kind of take some of the serious bits. And that was an experiment. That was a huge experiment for me because I was like, ooh, comedy horror People know where they are with that. But then adding an element of pathos and drama, and I'm a bit nervous people might not go for that. So, but that was really an exercise in sort of holding my nerve with that because it might not have worked or it, it, we might have got rid of it. If I'd had people who were a bit more controlling execs or a studio, for example, paying for it, they might well have gone, you've got to change those bits or make them funnier or whatever. 
I mean, I wonder, I mean, you two are in very different situations in this sense, because we've talked about notes, and obviously, as a scriptwriter, one of the notes that you're going to get, in many ways, the most important note, is the notes <coughs> you're going to get from the director. So clearly, for you, this is William Oldroyd, but for you, this is you. So I wondered about the relationship between, you know, when you're working as a writer and then a director, once you've had that script and you've gone through that incredibly laborious process and you have the script ready, when you're then on set, do you then treat this as like something you had nothing to do with and actually you just kind of rip the whole thing up where necessary and you know you separate yourself from will the scriptwriter will the director uh yes but on blackpond in the darkest universe tom who was the co-director he would always be the first to read everything sure. and so he was like a big part of the script writing process and on flowers it would be the producer naomi de and the script editor katie carpenter like they'll read everything first. So there's always like, it's sort of, ex you know, expanding circles of people who, so it's never like you're completely on your own. But I, I, in answer to the second half of your question, yes, I think there is a little bit of a dividing yourself into, I find like, I, apart from like very specific lines, which for whatever reason feel like it's actually got to be those words, mm -hmm. I generally I'm quite relaxed because when an actor comes on set, you know, like, and they hear it differently, it's sort of normally better they say it how they hear it. And it's only very occasionally where I feel like it will change the whole sense of the scene. Or if I just think, do you know what? I really like these six words in this order. Can you just, can we just try, you know, like, but that's quite rare, I think. That was Will Sharp ending our time with the screenwriters. Let's move on to money. Make your pot of cash go as far as possible with a practical session for producers, line producers and production managers on managing a budget and a schedule. Let's hear from Oliver Roskill, producer of Under the Shadow, on what not to skimp on if you're on a tight budget. You can always get deals on, on, on equipment. You can always get deals on post-production. You can always ask crews to work for less money. So if you're making a 50,000 pound film, hats off to you, I don't know how you do that, but you, know, you can do that. But there are certain things you just, you just, you shouldn't not have money for. And one I think is accounting, I'd say legal, insurance, expendables, and uh, I'd also say catering. Um, so if we start accounting, uh, if your accounting is a mess, and it doesn't work, whether you're doing it or you've got a bookkeeper to do it, your focus on production will be on bookkeeping and it will not be on the film you're making. And it's just, I've just gone through this on a film we just shot in America where the line producer and the accountant effectively fell out on day three. And I have spent the last four months cleaning that mess up and it was a disaster. But it's fine because the film was great. But my job then was not on the film. I was dealing with like trying to make sure we had enough money and we, it, was, it was ridiculous. But don't cheap out on accounting. Legal and insurance, they're there to protect you as filmmakers. It doesn't matter if you set up a company, which you would do anyway to protect yourself, you're still liable as, as a filmmaker. You can still be sued. So I think it's really important that you get good legal advice. You can get packages. Law firms will give you, like, you know, for a couple of grand, they'll give you like a, temp, a boiler template, which you can then adjust. And I think that's really important. Equipment houses will give you great deals, but they won't give you deliverables, they won't give you expendables like gaffer tape or whatever it is, so camera consumables, they're not gonna give that to you for free unless you literally own that company yourself. They just won't do it because it's a hard cost to them. The camera they're giving you for free, they've already made their money back on that camera tenfold, so it doesn't matter to them. But they won't give you those things for free, so you need to budget for, for that. I'd also say, as we touched on petrol, 
you can't drive a car on love. Um, it doesn't work. I've tried it, trust me. So, you, you, uh, you know, and if you're shooting in London, congestion charge, and you'll get stung with this later because someone goes, oh, crap, I forgot to give you my invoice. Here's my congestion charge. It's 21 days. And, you know, you suddenly might get that, you know, at 11 pounds. Suddenly you might get that across 10 people and you're looking at 1,000 pounds before you've battered an eyelid. So just be aware of little things like that. Where you're shooting does make a difference. And I think finally, you've got to feed people. If you don't feed people, they are just gonna, you'll just have a mutiny on your hands. And uh, when, I, when I mean feed people, giving them like a crap cold sandwich and a, and a cup of coffee at breakfast will go for, for, for one day. But you try and do that over three weeks and you'll just, people will stop working for you or they just start complaining at you and then your life becomes dealing with that and not, again, the problems that you face as a, as a filmmaker or a producer. I don't mean you have to go and spend 30 pounds a head getting a caterer in, but just be smart about it. Think about when you're shooting. Like, I, my mother has catered a lot of my projects before when I used to do commercials or, or like music videos and I had no money and I would say, Mum, could you please you know, come and do tea or whatever? And she would do it and I, I, you know, we would pay for the hard costs and the love was what her fee was, so that was great. Um, and, uh, and she loved it, so it's wonderful. And from the same session, here's the producer and line producer of The Leveling, Rachel Roby and Greg McManus, offering their top tip. And the last thing is don't salami slice every department or creative element, budget becomes uncontrollable. And this is something that I think both Greg and I feel really strongly about. Yeah. You always wind up doing it though, just to get it down, you know, sometimes you have to do it and you know you're going to pay for it somewhere down the line. And the reason you, you pay know, for it down the line just... is because if every little, if you've, if you've got a script that there's too much in it to do for the money that you've got, you try and squash every last yeah. thing down to just get it within the budget. But the problem is, is anyone, you know, every single thing could go slightly over or slightly out of control. <laughs> like if your budget is that tight, that you have to um, really think so carefully about squashing it down, you're probably better off dropping one whole yeah. thing, an element, a special effect, whatever. And then it gives you the freedom to plan everything else properly. Yeah. Like the yeah. times when I've done that and I've squashed everything in just by a hair's breadth, the, the budget's always gone wildly out of Well, control. in fact, we actually did do that at the levelling, didn't we? we? We pushed them cuts earlier so we weren't forced into making them later. Yeah, exactly. You know, whilst you've still got options to take them. Because actually the, cheap, the cheapest time to drop something is before it's been planned. Like, you know, because, <laughs> you know, when you, when, if you drop something late in the day, you might have to pay a cancellation fee or, you know, you might have already yeah. committed to the crew member who's going to operate that piece of machinery or, you know, whatever it is. So the, the, the best time to drop something is before the wheels have actually started to turn. That was Rachel Roby. Next up, a masterclass on the acclaimed British movie Notes on Blindness, which visualises the audio diary of John Hull, an academic who is slowly losing his sight. The BAFTA-nominated writer-directors Peter Middleton and James Spinney joined us to talk about the process of taking the original short film to full feature. Let's take a listen. So by March 2015, so three and a half years after we'd first met uh, John and Marilyn, we had the, we had the green, green light, the, the finance in place to, to make the film. Um, and by this point, we in effect had a, a kind of a 90-minute sound cut of the film, uh, an audio edit complete with temporary music and temporary sound effects, which could be played whilst, whilst reading the, the corresponding screenplay. We embarked on uh, what transpired to be about a 40-day shoot, filming in a range of locations, including um, Birmingham University, where, where John had taught in the, in the 1980s, 
a lot of a lot of time spent in Wales, which which doubled up as um, Australia for us. Um, a studio shoot just outside London in a, in a now defunct studio called Halifax Studio, which I think we're the last um, film to shoot there, sadly. Um, the interiors of John and Marilyn's home were, were reconstructed in this, this, um, in this studio by Damien uh, Craig, our production designer, um, and, he, and he built them on a, a kind of a raised platform so that they could be flooded on the, on the final day of the studio shoot for the interior rain scene. Um, and in the, in, in the spirit of this sort of madly ambitious, low-budget um, debut feature, um, we, we put as much of the budget on screen as possible, which meant our, our, our wonderful crew and, and, and cast often soldiered on, sleeping in youth hostels and um, in local scout camps. And that's a, that's a spirit that very much continued into the edit. We, had, um, we finished on the, the 1st of October 2015, and we had just 18 days to try and get a cut in front of, um, uh, in front of the Sundance selectors. Um, fortunately, as we say, we had, um, we had this audio edit of the film, which enabled Jules Quantrill, our, um, our heroic editor, to be assembling scenes as we went. Um, and actually, a little known fact about the, the production is that Jules actually proposed to his fiancée in the credits of the film, um, which she missed on the premiere. <laughs> and then they had to go again the following night. And we were sat behind her as, as the scrolling up, up and up and up, and then eventually uh, disappeared off. But anyway, she said yes. And they're getting married next week or something, isn't it? Isn't they? Um, yeah, and then we moved into the, the sound mix, of course. And, and of course, having Dan and Simone lip-syncing on set um, when he's winging around those, those various libraries, um, that, that no location sound was, was, was worth recording, and, and we didn't record any. So the, the remaining sound elements um, in the film were, were constructed entirely in post by Joachim Sundström and his, and his team. And this included working with Foley artists who matched the movement of the actors, who in turn then had, had matched their movements to John and Marilyn's voices, this kind of curious uh, mirror process. Um, and of course, embedding John's original recordings within constructed sound environments meant emulating the necessary ambience and, and presence in those locations into which they had been restaged. That was Peter Middleton and James Spinney. Now, Guru Live wasn't just happening in London. We also had events all day in Glasgow, which is where we head now to find out about the craft of feature filmmaking. If you're making your first feature at the moment, Fear not, we have tips from filmmakers who have been in your shoes. So in a moment, we'll hear from Ian Smith, OBE, producer of Mad Max Fury Road. But first, John McLean, writer, director of Slow West, gets a question from a member of the audience. Uh, my question is for John, and this is in regards to approaching a project as a writer-director. You talked about Film 4 developing the script. Mm. Throughout that process, how do you retain creative control? Where do you draw the line that, as an artist, not necessarily just as a businessman, you have to stick to your guns? Do you sell the farm just to get your name out there? There's a few bits to this question. I think, first of all, I've got a sort of dual taste in, in cinema where I love the... Robocops and Terminators and Predators, and I love the, the, the films that are seen as blockbusters, the good ones anyway, Mad Max. And I love the Bergman and the Tarkovskys and the, the Bressons, you know, and so somehow um, they both feel like the same sort of thing to me. So there's, you know, which again, it goes back to, you know, a good story, you know, and, you know, I tried somehow with Slow West to 
capture a little bit of both of my loves, you know, get my cake and eat it. So in that respect, film four is quite a good fit, you know, and, and then they left me alone, really. The question at the beginning was them trusting me, and it's all about trust. I hadn't written a feature film before, so they immediately said, right, we need to get you in with writers, and, you know, they threw different writers at me, and some writers wanted to take the whole project off and write it themselves, and, and, and I wasn't up for that. Other people didn't get really the heart of what I wanted to try and tell, which was, in a way, a Western, in another way, a personal story of a young Scottish person, Highland Clearances, going to America the same way as I went to America with sort of dreamy um, discoveries when I was younger. So, you know, finally I, I sort of realised that I had to write it and then someone told me about this wonderful thing called a script editor, which I didn't know about. So I met one or two script editors, um, one in particular we immediately just clicked, a woman called Kate Lays. She became my script editor and, and, and she was the missing link between my writing and what I wanted to do and tell and the story and also them, her taking, fielding notes from Film 4 and from the, the producers and giving me the, the notes that were worthwhile and, and you know, so um, that was a very important part of the jigsaw. IP is your value. And when you start to, when you have a bright idea one night in the middle of the night, and you are basically starting out on a journey to create value in IP. And the longer you can do that on your own, in the sense of owning it, the better. I will finance everything I do with development until the point when I start to get the filmmaker interested and maybe even the, the stars interested. Because that's the point when, if you've held out that long, then in, in the process, you, you then have more control, more authority over the material. If you, if you take development money, which is a totally realistic thing to do, then to some extent you're surrendering that authority. And you could find it, you have to choose your partners carefully. And, you know, and Channel 4 Film 4 has always been, um, started with David Rose a long time ago, and it's always had a very talent-centric approach. Long may it continue, and I'm not sure it will. But that's, if you've got a good partnership there, then you're in with a chance. Next up, how to pitch. Have you got a story that only you can tell? Here's a session on how to harness your passion into a pitch, wherever you meet that next big deal. We hear from David Keating, director and screenwriter, and Gavin Humphreys, producer of Quark Films. In this section, David and Gavin talk about preparing for those pesky curveball questions that you always get at the end of a pitch. Well, a question that I hear from development people quite often is, why here, why now? You ever heard of that one? You know, why is the story important, you know, in this place, and what's the relevance to now? Uh, so, you know, usually I've just tried to cook up something to have uh, in response. And it's not uh, something I would typically include in a pitch. Oh, and the why here, why now answer is this. I just wait for somebody to ask that annoying question. And then, you know, I'll have something to say. Gavin, but it do you, does, yeah, do no, you... absolutely does happen. And even when I think about for, say, the BFI First Feature Fund, like why is this your, why is this your first feature and why now? Um, and being able to speak to, well, this is the body of work that you know, Deborah's made so far, and this is the first film, and 
thinking about they're investing in you as much as your ideas. It's like they're investing in a career. So also, ironically, they're asking about, okay, this is this film now that you're talking about, but what's your next film and where do you see yourself going in three or four years? So they're kind of looking at career trajectory as well. So being prepared to talk about like you and your future career rather than this like right now moment in this project. You had a question, I think? How long is the perfect pitch, uh, was the question. I think my answer to that would be, you, you want to end before you've lost the person's attention. Uh, you know, an, an engagement is, I, I would rather have stopped speaking and be looking at the person and there'd be silence in the room, waiting for them to ask me something, than to just keep going on. I would err on the, the short side, that's me. My um, metric for, or my, my tool for polishing a pitch is the question, what can I leave out? What can I, what is not absolutely necessary? Make sure that they, their eyes aren't glazing over and that, I mean, the, the, one of the best pitches I ever did was actually at a party in Cannes, um, just happened in agent where I just had like two sentences about the, the project to say oh, this has happened and this person's now on board and then I just went, walked off because I had to talk to somebody else and just left them wanting to know more. Yeah. So then they were coming chasing me to find out more details. Yeah. That but, rarely happens but you know you've got to leave. I actually remember, um, I can't remember it was, a really big um, showrunner talking about pitching ideas to broadcasters and he would always like as soon as they were interested he'd like try and finish the meeting himself and then leave so then that just left on a good note rather than there's further excavation that becomes less interesting or you know more detailed just try and end it on a when they're interested and yeah. that's it i think the best pitch that i ever did was at uh, one of those pitching competitions it's like a blood sport thing in holland i so i got up and i said hello my name is david keating i'm the director on the feature film Wakewood, it's a film about how much we love our kids, but it's a horror film. <laughs> and that was the pitch. Mm. And so I, I introduced myself, I gave the format and the genre, I then made a thematic statement. It's a film about how much we love our kids, but, uh, and then I said genre at the end. And it got a laugh, like, like you did, and you know, we got interest, we got business. So, you've got your first credit in the bag, congratulations, but now what? Get some advice on what to do next from our panel of up-and-coming filmmakers. Now in this clip, the emphasis from the panel was on the importance of collaboration and how to go about finding your A-team. We hear from Afalabi Kuti, BAFTA-winning producer of Home, Helen Walsh, writer, director and 2016 BAFTA Breakthrough Brit, Michael Berliner, BAFTA-nominated producer of Adult Life Skills, and your chair is Tim Hunter, director of learning and new talent at BAFTA. So for me, it's kind of interesting because I worked on the business side of film as well for a long time. And I speak to a lot of people who work in you know, acquisitions and sales, constantly talking towards them about you know, what's going on in the market and getting advice from them on that side of things. And then the director writer I worked with on Home, I first met him at Sundance, which is my first gig. So back in, ooh, lights went down for that. Very dramatic <laughs> uh, moment. But yeah, we met on the flight going to Sundance Film Festival. And then um, we'd been friends like all the way through that and then worked together 10 years later and then I won a BAFTA from working with him. It was very, you know, 
uh, unusual thing. And he's like, he is an uber talent. That's his like fourth BAFTA. Um, and it's kind of like, he's amazing. But um, I was lucky and privileged to work with him, really. And do you work with, try, try to work with the same team or do you mix it up? What's, what's your it's, kind of it's, um, I like to vary things a little bit. Usually it's like finding a short film that I've seen that I really right. like, or maybe a music video, or whatever it might be like that on that side of things. And you're approaching. Um, uh, if you're looking for a director or writer, I mean, like I'm working with a poet, spoken with a poet at the moment. She did this uh, poem called Embarrassed about breastfeeding, and I'm not breastfeeding anyone. I'm not having children anytime soon. And I just found it so emotive and I connected to it straight away. And from that, I was like, I've got to work with this person. Um, so again, it's just finding someone who's very talented. And I keep like lists of different people that I want to work with, even like composers or whatever. I just like that music. And again, I reached out to them like, I've got nothing right now, but I just want to say you're talented. I want to meet with you. And maybe at some point in the future, we'll work together. And Helen, have you got any tips on um, collaborators? How do you go about it? Yeah, I think it's in terms of keeping lists, I've got a full A4 pad of all the DOPs I want to work with and probably never get to work. My, produ my producers were fairly young, as in young in the industry. And we've been on the journey together then now, um, producing my second feature. And they were nominated last year for um, Biffa Producers of the Year. So I think there's always that temptation. And certainly, you know, if you have an agent, your agent will always push you for the, for the biggest producer um, who can bring, you know, the biggest feature to the table. And I think, you know, sometimes it's, it's better to, I don't know, to, it, to start on a kind of even keeling, you take your, you know, you take your talent with you. You know, my DOP, my focus puller, uh, my first AD, they all stepped up for the role for the very first time on, on the film, which is a really great thing to have because there's a real raw energy. You're all in it together and everyone wants to cut their teeth. I would say it's good, you know, if you do collaborate with someone and then they go off and do something with somebody else and you go off and something, you learn from other people. Absolutely, yeah. So it's That's kind of so like, true. it's very good for you to go off and work with different people and yeah. come back and be like, this is what I've learned now, man. Honestly, I can do this. And I don't and, want to work with you anymore. You know, it's kind of like, it's, uh, <laughs> it's good to have that break for people and learn different yeah. things and you bring different skills back and that's wonderful. But I, I will also say that, you know, there are different types of directors and I think if you're not that way inclined where you don't like networking and you don't want to go out and you don't want to, you have to find producers and an agent who will do that, that for you. Because I, I don't like doing, doing all that, you know, that stuff. I will quite happily stay in my little cellar and just, until someone <laughs> pulls me out. Yeah, but you need, you, you know, you then can't have producers who are also kind of Want to be the cellar with you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just to say, I, re I really agree uh, on that point about the sort of achievement or ability level of, of the person and finding someone that you can connect with quite naturally. I mean, uh, on, on one of my projects, we were uh, seeking an exec producer to, to work with us. And the key thing for us was just finding someone of the right level. Because it was my first feature, we thought it'd be useful to have someone. Didn't want someone who was just a little more experienced than me, because it would almost seem like a, a rival who might want to take over. And, and also, are they really going to benefit us? On the flip side, if you get you know an absolute luminary in the industry, yeah. even if they did agree to do it, you're not really going to get any time from them. And I, I think you need to find someone that has the right balance level between uh, experience and passion. So it's your first time producing? Don't worry, this panel of BAFTA-nominated producers are here to share how they survived their first project. Speakers included George Amponza and Dion Walker, who produced The Hard Stop, and Camille Gatin, who produced The Girl With All The Gifts. 
In this clip, they discuss the role of the producer when selling the idea of the film. Here's Dion. You mentioned about um, passion and being passionate, and I just wanted to touch on that, I think, in terms of producing. And I mean, I, certainly as a creative producer, it was quite important for me to be as passionate about the project as George, mm. <laughs> you know, <More> so. <laughs> he says more so, yeah. you know, so, you know, there's, you know, there's that thing where that comes through in when you're pitching the project to yeah. finances, you know, you, you need to kind of present that, isn't it? It's years of your life too. Yeah. But also, exactly. what, after what care enough about it? If yeah. you're pitching it and you're clearly digging your own film, they think, oh, well, people will be in the That's cinema right. and they'll get That's excited because, right. right. like, and then this happens and then that, right. and we're going to do, you know, we were shooting, we went to Chernobyl to shoot part of our film, and there's two ways of saying we're going to Chernobyl to shoot our film. There's, <laughs> we're going to Chernobyl, or there's, yeah. there's, we're going to Chernobyl. That's right. And, you know, it's all about how you present it. I was of the, oh my God, we're going to Chernobyl, how cool is that camp? And, and you know, I had to call my insurer to explain that to him. Yes, <laughs> I was taking part of my crew with me to Chernobyl. That's right. And I remember, I, I do remember having a little Red Bull before calling my insurer. <laughs> and I was super excited. And he just said, yeah, of course, of course we can do that, no problem. So passion and excitement, you know, you, you're basically the shop window for your project. So if you're excited about it, you're going to get finances excited about it. That was Camille Gatin, and that's it from this first instalment of Guru Live 2017. Join us for part two when we'll be talking television by subscribing through your podcast app of choice. And while you're there, you can dig into our back catalogue of programmes with amazing movie talent, both on and off the screen. I'm Rihanna Dillon. The producer is Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Until then, bye.